welcome. Let me wish you Merry Christmas uh, one more time because we stretch Christmas out at Northwake. What you may not know is that you get 12 days starting on the 25th. That's when the 12 days of Christmas start. Historically, it's a season called Christmas Tide. So we are going to milk it for all it's worth, and we will be celebrating Christmas once again today. And if at home, for instance, if you happen to have, still have up your crazy nativities, like this peanut nativity, that's okay. Um, I doubt the chocolate nativity has survived this long, but you could leave it up. You could also leave that up, I think. I'm not even sure what that one is. Um, the minimalist nativity, of course, that's a year-round kind of thing. You could leave that up. Uh, forever. Now at our house, the deal with nativities is, at least in some one piece, we're a little bit of um, fanatics about historical accuracy. And so um, the wise men were not part of the original nativity. They didn't get there till later on. Maybe like a year or two, uh, scholars tell us, when Jesus was living in a different house. So at, at my house, so this is a bookshelf in our living room, and you can see the nativity over here. Um, the wise men are up here. It, it takes them almost two years to get all the way down there and, and, and make it there. So we, we have kind of a bent towards historical accuracy in all things nativity, which raises a really interesting question this morning. In light of that, what do you guys think about this nativity? So, so, like, if you look in Matthew's account, uh, no dragons. If you look in Luke's account, no, no dragons. There you got sheep and camels, maybe, critters, shepherds, that kind of stuff. Definitely no dragons. Um, in John chapter 1, in John's account, that account, no, definitely no dragons there. But if you look in John's other nativity account, in Revelation chapter 12, you find a dragon there. Um, it's, a, it's a vision that he had. In chapter 12, it reads like this. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Professor Chad Bird has written insightfully about this. He says, it's the nativity story we don't talk about. A dragon trying to eat our Lord. Um, Clearly, more was going on at Christmas than drinking eggnog and kissing under the mistletoe, or even peace on earth. Uh, Bob Lowry also writes, he says, in essence, what we have here is Christmas on Patmos, the island where John was banished. A Christmas with no shepherds or sheep, no carols or wise men, not even Joseph is present. John's nativity set, if it were to be sold in stores, would have only three pieces, a woman, a child, and a dragon. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, we'll look at John's three pieces to his nativity together this morning. And um, it's always good when you open your Bible to pray. It's really good when you open your Bible to the book of Revelation to pray. So um, you can pray for me especially this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, have mercy upon us. Uh, what we hold is your word to us. And so... Um, we want to honor it. We want to be faithful to it in its telling and in our receiving of it. So this morning, give us keen minds and willing hearts. Uh, we ask for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. 
Well, Revelation is the recording of a vision or a series of visions that God gave the Apostle John. John was one of the 12 apostles, right? He wrote the Gospel of John in all likelihood. Also those three letters that we just studied as a church family, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But he, he received this revelation from God of Jesus Christ while he was in exile for his faith in Jesus on the island of Patmos. And Revelation, if you've ever read through it, you know its content is a wild imagery of everything from great evil beasts to cups of wrath to great wedding feast to city with streets of gold. Chapter 12 is one of those visions, and yes, it has a dragon in it. So let's, let's look at it together, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So first figure in John's Patmos nativity is that of a woman, and obviously it's no ordinary woman. She's glorious in her appearance, and John tells us, that she's a sign. That is, she's a symbol. And there's a sense in which he's kind of being Captain Obvious here because she's wearing the sun and moon and stars as part of her wardrobe. So, of course, she's a sign. This is symbolic. And she has been connected with everybody from Mary, Jesus' mother, to Eve back the first, uh, of the first couple created in Genesis to uh, Mary Baker Eddy by the Christian scientists, right? But the most likely and the place she's most often connected is simply representing God's people, perhaps especially his people in the Old Testament, faithful Israel. And she is pregnant. She is seriously pregnant, as in in the throes of labor, about to give birth to a child, and as we'll see, that child will be a baby boy. Her pains bring to mind all the suffering and hardship of God's people in the Old Testament as they brought the Messiah to us. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Okay. So this is the second figure in John's nativity. A red dragon. There's a dragon in the manger. And if that's not wild enough, that dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems or seven crowns. And rather than work our way through all the minutiae there, let's just say that it's symbolic of great power, and these crowns may represent the earthly kings and rulers through whom the dragon works. Ellen Johnson, in his commentary on Revelation, says a pic it's a picture of the fullness of evil in its hideous strength. And this dragon's power and stature are very great indeed. Just the sweep of the dragon's tail caused a third of the stars to fall out of heaven. A possible reference to fallen angels. And the very sign of the dragon or the serpent reminds us of that old serpent, right? 
the devil himself. That's how he's going to be identified in just a couple of verses. The dragon is the devil. Thirteen times in Revelation, the devil is referred to as a dragon. And he is red, blood red, it seems. Because we find him here crouched in the manger before the woman as she prepares to bring her child into the world so that he can devour it. John McCallum describes the scene this way. He says, instead of humble shepherds who come to greet and worship the newborn baby, and instead of magi from the east who came to worship the child king and bring him expensive gifts, in the Revelation account there's another sign, a huge blood-red, seven-headed, ten-horned dragon with crowns on every horn. This is no Puff the Magic Dragon, he writes. This is a monstrous, violent, angry, evil dragon with a tail long enough and wide enough to sweep up one-third of the stars of heaven and bat them down to the earth. The devil dragon is hungry, he writes. See him there, standing before the woman, towering over her, casting her in his evil shadow. The woman is now dilated to ten. The crown of the baby's head is starting to show. With labored breaths and screams, the woman begins to push the baby into the world as the dragon waits, salivating, licking his chops with his long, forked tongue, rubbing his dragon wings together. The devil dragon is ready to devour the child the moment the child tumbles out of the womb. This is a very different kind of a perspective on Christmas than what we see on our cards or in our carols. Uh, Professor Chad Bird suggests that we rewrite the lyrics to one of our most beloved carols to reflect this second figure in nativity. This is what he says, hark the herald angels sing, a dragon waits to eat our king. Try that one the next time you go caroling and see what kind of reaction you get. See, what Genesis had foretold is coming to pass, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, God says, I will put enmity between you, and he's speaking to the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Um, It's a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Satan seeks to destroy Christ and prevent his mission from taking place. Um, Professor Danny Aiken, the president at Southeastern, writes, Since the declaration of God in Genesis 3.15, this verse, Satan has sought to prevent this male child from coming. He moved Cain to kill Abel. He moved Pharaoh to kill Hebrew baby boys. He moved Saul to kill David. He moved wicked Athaliah to destroy all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. He moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews. And now at the birth of Christ, we hear these sobering prophetic words spoken to Mary by the aged Simeon in the temple. You remember it? When they take Jesus there for his dedication, as it were, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce your own soul also. It's the language of of opposition and suffering. More famously, after Christ is born, Herod in Matthew chapter 2, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The dragon indeed stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Others see the opposition to Christ throughout his ministry as coming from Satan. For instance, Satan takes him up to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down. He continually opposes the child, the Christ. Bob Lowry writes, this is no, there's no sentimental Christmas story here. No cozy fireplace, only a fire-breathing dragon. No cookie-eating Santa dressed in red, only a red dragon ready to devour the baby Jesus. No cuddly animals lowing, only a cunning dragon sweeping his tail across the heavens. And so now we're ready to meet the third figure in John's nativity, the male child. In verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, this imagery of one who rules the nations with a rod of iron is from Psalm 2 where it is given to the Messiah himself. Psalm 2 says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This baby boy, born to the woman, is the Messiah of God, the Christ. And God, in this, uh, in this imagery, in verses 5 and 6, uh, where it talks about her child being caught up to God and to his throne. God rescues the Messiah child. It's like a snapshot of the entire life of Christ that ends in his resurrection and his ascension to the throne of God. Um, and it talks there about 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's a re recurring theme in Scripture. And rather than focus on when that time is or how that time should be understood, the emphasis here is on that this is a time where God protects his people for three and a half years. He protects them. God rescues not only the woman's child, but the woman herself. God is protecting his people here. And those are the three figures that are in John's nativity. The woman, who is God's faithful people. The murderous dragon, who is Satan himself. And the male child, who is Jesus, the Christ. And now the scene shifts to a battlefield in heaven. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's a great battle underway between Michael and his angels on the good side and the dragon and his angels on the evil side. Again, Chad Bird says, tweak our, our carol lyrics this way. He says, silent night, violent night, hell and heaven meet to fight. Yeah. But good prevails, right? 
The great dragon is thrown down. Over and over again it says he's thrown down from heaven. He's defeated. He is banished from the presence of God. But how? How is the battle won? Is it a numbers game? Does Michael just have more angels on his side? Does he have more firepower? Does he have a better strategy? What, what tips the scales here? And that's where John goes next. He points us to a different source of victory in verse 10. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So victory is attributed here not to angelic might, but to the cross work of Jesus The blood of the Lamb, the voice declares, that's what caused the victory. One writer helps us think about it this way. He says, Michael, the angel, is not the field officer who does the actual fighting, but the staff officer in the heavenly room who is able to remove Satan's flag from the heavenly map because the real victory has been won on Calvary. And the word used here. Uh, in verse 9 and such that's rendered devil, it's, it's used to describe this enemy some 35-ish times in the New Testament. It means a slanderer or someone who falsely accuses. And John puts it plain here. He says, he's the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night. It's been said this way by one writer. He wields the weapon of accusation. And by it, He enslaves us in guilt, shame, depravity, and lies. Each evil is a link in the chains that bind us. And each chain the accuser wraps round and round our souls. His greatest fear is that we will hear that his enemy has come to set us free. One writer cataloged these accusations to help us think about them. It may be that you've heard these accusations whispered to you. Things like, you're a failure, you're a fool, you're of no use to God or other Christians, you're worthless, you're an embarrassment to Christ, you're wasting your time to confess your sins, God won't forgive you, you're inferior to other believers, you're destined to always fall short, you're a hopeless victim of your past, helpless to change your future, a pathetic excuse for a Christian, you're owned by Satan. That's what you always will be. There's no hope for improvement. You're stupid and beyond the reach of prayer. And maybe you've heard those voices. And sadly, maybe some of them were raised with those voices. Whether your your parents said things like that to you. Some of you are in marriages where things like that are said to you by your spouse. It is a great betrayal of Christ to speak the words of Satan to those you are charged to love and to encourage. May it never be in your families or in mine. But by the work of Christ, he says, he, the accuser, 
the one who voices those words to us, has been thrown down. John puts it this way in his writing in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Alan Johnson puts it all together beautifully. I'm going to put it on the screen because it's so important what he says. In times past, he says, Satan's chief role as adversary was directed toward accusing God's people of disobedience to God. And the justice of these accusations was recognized by God and therefore Satan's presence was tolerated. But now the presence of the crucified Savior in God's presence provides the required satisfaction of God's justice with reference to our sins. Therefore, Satan's accusations are no longer valid. He is cast out. And he says, what a strong comfort or consolation this provides for us, for God's faltering people. See, when you hear those accusations, they no longer stick. They're no longer true because Christ has paid for those acts of disobedience. He's paid for those things, and they are washed away by the blood of the Lamb. By Jesus' work, we are also empowered to say no to sin and hold firm in our faith in the love and mercy of God, even towards the likes of us. But we should be clear on something this morning. Satan is a defeated accuser. What he says of you is not true because Christ's work is greater. Chad Bird imagines how this plays out. He says, the dragon who failed to devour the child in the manger swallows the man atop the cross. And in so doing, unbeknownst to this beast, he ate poison. For if anything will destroy an accuser, it is taking freedom into his bowels. At the death of Jesus, there was a great rattling of chains. The links of evil that bound us snapped into a world held in bondage to the dragon was, in the death of the Son of God, immediately and irrevocably freed forever from his captivity. So on Christmas Day, John of Patmos teaches us to proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God went forth to slay the dragon. Blessed be the name of the Lamb. That's Put that in your Christmas carol. John also says, though, in verse 11, he says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Two things there. They are faithful to Christ. That word of their testimony, they are faithful to Christ. Um, and... They suffer for Christ. They love him more than life itself. Clearly, our victory here is not without continued suffering and sorrow. Some will give up their lives for their love of Jesus. But now the battlefield shifts from heaven to earth. Look at verse 12, the back end. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So though this dragon is a defeated foe, the accuser is not yet completely vanquished. So he continues to persecute the woman and as we'll see in just a minute, her offspring. His time is limited, so his wrath is great. And again, there's a reference to God protecting his people. Throughout this, this spiritual battle, God's protecting his people by the wings of a great eagle. And all kinds of crazy things have been put forward about this. One writer says that this is some kind of massive airlift that's going to happen to to raise the fleeing people across the rugged terrain to their place of protection. Since the eagle is the national symbol of the United States, it's possible that the airlift will be made available by aircraft from the 6th Fleet of the Mediterranean. Probably not. I don't think that's what John had in mind when he wrote this you know, a couple thousand years ago. More likely, it goes back to Exodus 19 where God says you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself it's the imagery of God's beautiful rescue from slavery and captivity and don't miss that God's provision for his people is there in their suffering once again he protects the woman and again there's this Three and a half year likely reference to time. But again, it's a time of care. It's a time of nourishment. It's a time of protection that God does. And this theme of protection continues in verses 15 and 16 near the end of our passage. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and the wom- after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And this idea of of evil pouring forth from the serpent's mouth may have to do with his false teaching or, again, those slanderous accusations. And God moves the earth to protect his people once again. And then the last verse, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea verse 17 so the war continues on towards us now the offspring of God's people who brought Christ into this world people who follow Jesus One writer says, wars have been waged over money and property and honor and power and oil, but this war, the greatest conflict in human history, it's over us. And God is actively protecting his people even when they suffer greatly. We are his. We belong to him unfailingly because of what Jesus has done. And though the suffering will be great, for some will even give their lives, John implies, the accusations, they fall because we belong to Jesus. The accusations are still slung, but they no longer stand. 
You know, this beautiful passage in the Bible of Romans chapter 8, many of you have read it, probably treasure it. It flows out of this battle in Revelation 12. Listen to, listen to what Romans 8 promises us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A little farther down. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then the passage ends this way. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we are left in Revelation 12 with the dragon prowling the shores, seeking someone to devour. And in the coming chapters of the book of Revelation, the battle continues to rage terribly across the pages of John's Revelation. But oh, it ends beautifully. It ends perfectly. John McCallum summarizes the last two chapters of Revelation this way. He says, what about God's people? What will become of them at the end of the war? What will become of us? Revelation makes that information clear. God has prepared a new heaven and a new earth for us where old things like death and sickness and suffering will, and evil will pass away and God makes all things new. You know what becomes of all God's people, don't you? It's the way every good story should end. All God's people live happily forever after. Amen. Amen. There's a... A New Testament scholar, his name was George Ladd, and he summarized it this way. He says, the single intent of this passage, Revelation 12, is to assure those who meet satanic evil on earth that it really is a defeated power, however contrary it might seem to human experience. And honestly, the Christmas season can be horribly difficult for many of you. Your sorrows seem multiplied to you and your loneliness is staggering and the voice of the accuser is deafening. But Professor Greg Lanier helps us here. He helps us. He says, in two words, this passage, Revelation 12, in its retelling of the nativity, gives us not only the theme of both the entire book of Revelation and even the whole Bible, but the very meaning of Christmas itself. Jesus wins. Okay. Jesus wins. The, um, the picture I showed you earlier of the dragon in the nativity, it belonged to a guy named Michael Goen. And he puts this side note at the end of his blog about his nativity. He says, this year, our dragon keeps finding himself placed on his back, some distance away from the baby Jesus. Evidently, our girls have been doing this to indicate the dragon's defeat. Our children understand what Christmas is about. Jesus wins indeed. So, so Merry Christmas. The dragon is defeated. His accusations do not stand against you. The baby is alive and on the throne of God. His victory at the cross has set you free. Pray with me, please, and then we'll worship. Lord, have mercy upon us now to peek behind the curtain and see backstage of Christmas and the wonder of what you are accomplishing for us. Oh, the depths of your love for us, Lord. That you would send your son uh, into battle 
for us, to give his life for us. And we praise you that he has prevailed, the one who has come and become one of us. He has prevailed, and now we belong to you, sons and daughters, by faith in the mercy of Christ on our behalf. So we give him praise now. So stand with me. Let's worship the Christ who came for us.